0: It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You can just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host.
2: It's brand new season two.
0: Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today, we are answering your listener questions.
1: That's right, buddy. This is a Listener Questions Monday episode that we've got lined up for you. We hope everybody out there had a wonderful weekend, but uh, we've got five awesome questions to get to. A uh, listener is wondering if the work-provided life insurance that uh, that her and her husband receive, if that's going to be enough. Ooh. We're going to talk about that. Another listener is, he's got a 401k true-up Option. That's something that is offered, but he wants to know if this actually means that he's not leaving money on the table. Not tune up, but true up. True which up. We'll get into it. Did I say true up or No, tune no, up? you said true up. Okay. I know true people up. might hear that and they're like, I don't even know what that is. We'll yeah. talk about that. And then another listener, she is selling her house or she wants to, and she's wondering if she should go the, uh, take the iBuyer route. So we've got that question, plus a couple others on today's episode. All right. Before we get to that, Matt, I wanted to quickly mention
0: have you heard of. EU-261. It's a law in the is European... Is that the new uh, COVID variant? That's what it sounds like. <laughs> no, although I can see why you say that. No, but there's... B- BA 2.61. BA <laughs> 2.61. <laughs> but so this is a, a law in Europe that basically says that you get paid if a flight is delayed or canceled. Oh, okay. And by a certain, by a certain amount of time. So there's different rules it's, about... It's got that Euro, European feel to it. EU. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so um, the, there were... A couple people in my life recently who mentioned flight cancellations on a trip to or from Europe, or at least a substantial delay. And I was like, hey, you might want to check this out and file a claim with the airline because you might be entitled to compensation and, and you're like oh yeah what 20 30 bucks and it's like no 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 no, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars nice. so nice yeah. um, this is one of those things that a lot of people don't know about and by the way the the statute of limitations is like years long for some of these so if you're like man two years oh, back <laughs> i got screwed on this flight and it doesn't have to be in uh, Inter-European
1: flight. It can be a flight to and from. Yeah, exactly. So nice. look at the details. So and, if you fancy like that, like all of Joel's friends are, right? uh, <laughs> make sure to jet to setting reach out. <laughs> for Paris and all the likes. Right, but well, folks are just talking about bicycling from point A to point B to, yeah. <laughs>
0: to, to the grocery store. Right. Yeah. We'll put we'll put a link to an article that tells like, helps you understand how to get compensation for EU261 yeah. if you had a substantial delay or a cancellation. But it's kind of cool. Like my sister did this um, a few years ago. Sure, oh, she actually nice. got paid more in the compensation than the flight cost her because she got such a dirt cheap deal
1: okay. so it's yeah it's pretty sweet they, they pay actual replacement cost not depreciated cost of <laughs> right. that ticket and we've talked about how these are there are similar benefits that credit cards offer but of course you have to a know about that and have used the right credit card or and b even have the credit card uh, so this kind of sidesteps all of that right. or it does not come down to, to payment it's even just if the, you, the even, European law
0: even if you did you could double dip essentially and, and Ooh, that's the with real the credit card Can, and, yeah. and
1: EU 261 Cause, yeah cause they're separate it, yeah. it makes uh, makes Sense that you should be able to that is one of those
0: Ooh, things where interesting. It, it would not be uh, cheap. I think it'd be frugal to to take advantage of the, the credit card benefit, the trip cancellation insurance, but also under your your legal right um, as a someone taking a trip to or from Europe, like get the money. Oh, and by the way, Matt, I don't think we've mentioned this yet. We're gonna have a listener hang here in Atlanta in our yeah, boy
1: home city this coming Friday. We teased so. to it was that last week or a couple weeks ago. Yeah. But it's this official. Is, this is the official announcement. Yeah. So if you live locally and you want to um, see our ugly mugs,
0: drink beer together, please come out to Voice Brewing. We'll be there from 4 to 8 p.m. Let's incentivize, folks, as well. Let's We'll, we'll have a few pairs of our How to Money socks on hand. Sure, yeah. Great. Might even buy you a beer. We'll Ooh. see. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> we hope to see you there at Voice. How to Money Hang. Meet your fellow listener this Friday from 4 to 8.
1: All right, let's uh, introduce the beer that you and I are going to enjoy today. This is a brew by Common Space. It's called Chubby Unicorn, and uh, we will give our thoughts on this guava milkshake IPA at the end of the episode. That's right. Uh, but let's
0: get to the subject of hand, Matt. We're answering listener questions. We've got a, a good slate of them today on the show. And if you have a question, we would love to hear from you. It takes uh, all of three minutes to think up your question, to talk it into your phone, into that voice memo app, and then to send it our way. You can find the specific instructions for how to do that at howtomoney.com slash ask. Can't wait to hear from you. And this listener wants to know whether or not they should sell their home to an entity instead of a human.
2: Hello, my name is Rosemary, and I currently live in Central Texas. We are moving due to my husband's job. After much deliberation, and against common wisdom, we have decided to sell our home, which we have only owned for two years. What are the pros and cons of selling your home to an iBuyer, such as Open Door, versus going through a traditional real estate agency? When might you choose one option over the other? Thank you.
1: All right, let's kick this thing off, Rosemary. Thank you so much for your question, and by the way, congrats on the new new job there for your husband. I hope it's a, just a, a fantastic opportunity as well as a, a promotion, right? Hopefully, you are y'all are earning more. But I'm also hoping too that you get to move somewhere great, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I but mean, Texas
0: is great. But Texas is great. I mean, if you're if you're wanting to, to, to move
1: on from Texas, where would you hope to be going? I don't know. I mean, Atlanta, Georgia, baby. Yeah. I mean, probably right. Water's just fine. It's pretty great here. But uh, you're you're talking about selling your house, and lucky for you even after owning uh, that house for just a couple years, it's likely that you're still going to come out ahead, right? In a a normal time period that could really come back and kind of bite you. But just given the lack of supply, given the soaring prices that we've seen since you made that purchase, I'm pretty sure that you're probably still going to be doing okay. Yeah. Obviously, it comes down to your, your personal situation here, but at least it's not like let's say it was what, 06, 07 that you made the purchase. And Eesh. then if you're looking to sell two years after that, that would put you in a pretty painful position. It'd be called taking a bath, right? For yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: And so, yeah, definitely fortunate for Rosemary that even despite despite those transaction costs that are so heavy I- involved in buying and selling and taking out a mortgage and all that stuff, it would typically mean that you would lose money over such a short-term ownership cycle. But that's not going to happen to you, Rosemary. Uh, but let's talk about buyers. And first, what is an buyer? Maybe let's define the terms. Well, simply put, they're they're big companies that are willing to instantly, and that's what the I stands for, by the way, in iBuyers. They they will instantly buy your house from you in order to turn around and sell it themselves on the open market. Open Door and OfferPad, they are two of the largest players out there there. You mentioned uh you mentioned Open Door Rosemary in your question. But Zillow and Redfin, they they had a large percentage of the market before they ended their iBuying programs and basically they had a, a tough time buying homes at scale right and during the pandemic when there was a lot of money sloshing around they were overpaying for houses they literally bought high and sold low which is the exact opposite of what you want to do really with any investment right and so since then i buying has kind of wised up it, so you're really, you're much less inclined to get an amazing offer today. Two, three years ago, you might have seen Zillow give you more money than uh, you would have gotten
1: if you put it on the open market. But now... Purely because of the novelty of it. Because sure. it was a new thing. It hadn't necessarily been proven. They were still trying to figure things out. They're trying
0: to establish market share. Mm-hmm.
1: And so they're like,
0: hey, cool. And they, I guess they didn't really, they hadn't done their due diligence. They hadn't figured out what it took to buy and sell homes effectively without losing money. And then they realized, wait a second, it's actually gonna be really hard to pull this it's off.
1: A lot, yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into account, you know, like how do you account for the incessant barking dog that's right. next door if, you, if you're just looking at pictures, uh, which is how a lot of the eye buyers do it. It's oftentimes sight unseen. Mm-hmm. But the future of the just eye buying industry is uncertain. It, it seems like that they're kind of building the plane while they're flying it. I really like the idea of iBuyers, but the reality just has played out a little differently. It sounds really good, but the end result isn't necessarily awesome. Uh, And that's largely because they are acting as another middleman who's looking to get paid. So that means that the offer that you're likely going to receive, it's going to be typically lower than what you would get with a traditional listing. Uh, they are looking for their piece of the pie. They're looking for their cut. Uh, some folks might think that selling via an iBuyer is actually going to reduce fees, which is going to make maybe make the offer more competitive in reality. like Why not go digital? Right. That is not the case because the fees can be similar, if not more than the fees that a typical realtor would charge. And so why would you go with an option where you're Essentially, going to get hit with the same fees, but with us with an inferior service, right? Mm-hmm. Like with at least with a realtor, you've got somebody like a real person. It's, it feels like a customized, bespoke tailored care that you're receiving. But with iBuyer, man, that seems like the path to take if you're not looking for service, right? Like, I mean, just iBuyer, even in the name itself, like it makes me think of iRobot or whatever the movie (laughs) and it's, you know, robots and stuff.
0: Well, you said service, (laughs) but most people when they're looking to sell via an iBuyer, they're not looking for service. They're looking to sell it immediately, right? They don't care about like whether someone's going to hold their hand and walk them through the details and and help them get their house in order so they can get top dollar. They want to be done. They want the transaction over completed. They want their cash, right? And so that is what iBuyers do well. They are the, the convenience play, the convenience pick. Um, but we're talking to one of the other big downsides of using an iBuyer is that you're, you're asking one single entity to make an offer for your house. You're skipping the open market, right? And the competition that's generated when a home is publicly listed, when it's put on the MLS, that's when uh, everybody and their sister sees your listing on Zillow and says, oh, that's a cute one on a cute street. I think I want to go take a look at that. When you sell directly, to an eye buyer, you miss those eyeballs, and you miss the the potential interest from people. You know, and, and even though obviously home buyers, they're not lined up uh, the sidewalk to see a house like they were back in 2021, early 2022 still just a few competing offers, right, is all you really need to ensure that you're getting the absolute best price. Having at least two or three interested parties looking at the house making offers on the home is going to ensure that you're getting uh, what it's actually worth on the market. You don't get that with an iBuyer. You're getting literally just the one offer. And that, you got one buyer that doesn't help you. The buyer. That doesn't help you know whether or not that is what the house would actually go for if you were to put it up for sale. And plus, not all homes qualify because buyers aren't available in all markets. They're Available kind of more in the southern United States, less in the northern regions. So yeah, it, they
1: are in Texas, but they might not be where a lot of our other listeners who listen, Matt, where uh, yeah. where they are. It depends on the property too, because I think oftentimes they're looking for uniformity because that's how they're able to easily, from a digital standpoint, determine the value of a home. And if you have a piece of property that's on a lot of land or that's a, that's a really unique home, either a they your house may not be eligible to be purchased by an eye buyer, or b you might get severely low-balled because they're not really taking that right. into account as much as some of the other things that a lot of folks are looking for. Yeah, yours has like a water slide from the second story down to the pool, um, <laughs> and you got like a grotto or something. I mean, you might get disqualified. Right. I don't know. <laughs> they might not even want to play with you. But like you said, folks who are wanting basically like cash now which is a part of why we don't like this whole like the the ibuyer industry or sort of that that mentality is it seems like almost like a a desperate ploy to unloading your house quickly which isn't how you should be approaching selling your home but yeah the speed at which you could sell your house how it's streamlined that's certainly one of the advantages to going with an iBuyer, but it's also just going to be so much easier, right? Because like maybe some folks actually, like they do have the time, right? It's not about how quickly they can do it. They actually have the time, but they just don't want to deal with the hassle of it. They don't want to put up with the headaches of scheduling appointments, of hiding all of their personal stuff so that... Potential buyers can envision their own stuff <laughs> right. uh, there in the house. It's the easy button, uh, but you are paying a price for this convenience. And you know, we we hope for your bottom line that you are able to take the time to to actually do some of these things, to do the legwork. There are meaningful dollars on the line, and we until the industry gets maybe more competitive or more efficient, to where the I buyers are taking less of a cut we're not really in favor of going the uh, taking the iBuyer route. Sure. Yeah, I mean, a pawn shop will buy your stuff instantly too, and they're not but they're just not going to pay you as much as you
0: could get. Exactly. Typically, if you list it yourself on Facebook Marketplace or if you sell it on eBay, there are all sorts of ways where you can, you know, sell that an asset that you have in,
1: on a shorter truncated timetable, but typically that means you're gonna make less money for it. It does feel like the pawn shop of Realtors. Yeah. Like like I think maybe that's the slight negative connotation. Again, not that this, pawn shops are they serve a purpose. they're a legit business and the ability to go in there and man, I, I don't have the time. I, I just need to unload some stuff and in order to have some cash on hand. It serves both parties well, but who stands to make a profit? The person that's there in the middle, and that's mm-hmm. what I buyers looking to do. Yeah, I mean, we've all seen Pawn Stars. We know what happens there. Okay, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't seen Pawn Stars. Oh, really? You've never seen one episode of it? I don't think so. Oh, let wow. I me. Mean, I, I understand
0: the premise. Though. Next, you're going to tell me you never saw one episode of Orange County Choppers or whatever that was.
1: Oh, I know. I definitely. Did. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah, they're always fighting and yeah. throwing stuff at each there other. There's like two of the most popular <laughs> reality TV shows of all time. That and like Deadliest Catch, right? Uh, 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 but it, I think, in summation, Rosemary, we would say that it can't it can't hurt to get a quote from Open Door from Offer Pad. To see if they're in the ballpark. But get a quote from both, right? And you might get a solid offer, you know, with just a few clicks. But hiring an experienced agent who knows the ins and outs of your neighborhood could net you thousands of dollars more, if not tens of thousands of dollars more. And and putting in some of that that work up front, whether it's, you know, taking out some ugly wallpaper and painting a neutral color, or something like that, the, all those sorts of things that an agent is going to give you the tips on. Hey, spending a few thousand here could mean many more thousands, right, uh, when it comes to, to you know, putting your home on the market and getting those offers. So I would talk to yep. an agent, once you have those offers in hand from the iBuyers and say, hey, how much more can we get? Like, And if it's not worth the hassle to make an extra couple grand, you, then you take the iBuyer offer. But if you say, actually, the agent thinks we can get 15 to 20 grand more, it's worth the extra time, the, the, the extra effort. It doesn't hurt to at least bark up that buyer tree, but in all likelihood, you're going to do better going the traditional route. Totally agree.
1: Yeah. It can be a great data point, essentially, to help you to decide what it is that you should be doing moving forward. And, you know, given the the criticism that we have presented on the podcast about uh, realtors and the fees that they present, or the fee, the fees that they charge, I think a lot of folks might be thinking, oh, man, I'm surprised that Matt and Joel aren't down with iBuyers because it seems like it kind of automates things. It kind of It's a more efficient marketplace, but it's not really. Like, that's the problem is that you're beholden to a single Buyer. If it was more like a sophisticated marketplace where buyers are being put directly in touch with sellers, and you are able to automate a lot of the stuff there in the middle, to where there's not necessarily a middleman, a middleman there in like taking a cut, as opposed to just software that's kind of running in the background, that sounds more attractive to me. Like I'm more hopeful for that as opposed to just another player that's in between you know you and your money. But we're just we're not talking about widgets
0: here. We're not talking about tennis shoes. We're not talking about T-shirts. Right. This is a complex market, the market of real estate. And it varies from street to street. And like you said, Matt, a, kid, uh, a, a dog barking across the street, a troublesome house that, that, that's right next door. Well, that can make all the difference in what you're getting and what buyers see and what they're willing to offer. And so I just don't know if I buyers are ever going to be able to compete in a, a hyper-customized business like real estate. But we've got more questions to get to, including one about tossing bonus money into a retirement account. Does that make sense? And will it help him avoid more tax? We'll get to that and more right after this.
1: You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign
0: up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way.
1: Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So, it's safe to say, it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wise friend.
0: I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations Or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. And now a word from the show sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money
1: to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle.
0: Visit betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk.
1: Performance is not guaranteed. We are back and we will get to that 401k question here in a minute. But first, let's hear from a listener who is actually, uh, she heard us answer a question and now she's got another question. It's a question <laughs> of a question. Piggybacks off of a question. We'll get to that one right now.
4: Hi, Matt and Joel. My name is Megan, and I'm a longtime listener of the podcast from Portland, Oregon. Recently, when listening to one of the Ask How to Money episodes, you were answering a listener question about term versus whole life insurance, and it got me thinking about something that I'd love to get your advice on. Currently, my husband and I are both 29 and working full time with no kids. We both have insurance built into our work benefits where we would get 1.5 times our income upon death of either of us. We have a healthy savings account and no debt beside our mortgage, and since we don't have any dependents, we have always thought this would be sufficient in the unlikely event that we'd need it. However, we do plan to start a family in the next few years and are wondering, should we go ahead and establish term life insurance now since we're younger and healthy in case something were to happen so that we can ensure that we get it for a good price, knowing that we'll eventually need it? Thanks so much for your thoughts and love listening to the podcast.
0: All right, Matt, speaking of efficient markets, life insurance is a much more efficient market than real estate. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were
1: gonna say universal whole life. Oh. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot more uh you know, all the actuary actuary Exactly. What are they actuarial called? tables? Actuarial There's tables. There's more standardization. You can yeah. shop for it with
0: multiple, you know, providers online in a simple sitting. And so we're big fans of term life, by the way, in case you didn't know, if you're like, I think I need some life insurance, term life is is the way to go. We'll actually I uh, put a link to an article I wrote about that on the website in the show notes. But before we tackle this new term life policy, let's talk about work-provided life insurance policies for just a second. Because a lot of folks, they might be thinking that, well, one one and a half times your income, that's plenty, right, if something happens to either of you. And the truth is, it it might be. But it does depend on the specific details, right? It sounds like you've both done a good job thinking through the particulars, which is great. But for others who might be in a similar boat, consider what your debt obligation is as a couple. If one of you dies, would the other be able to continue to pay the mortgage? Let's say you make uh, substantially less. You're a teacher and the other other person is a software engineer. That changes the dynamics, right? If it's split 50-50, it's like a kind of a simpler dynamic to, to think about but and I know like there's obviously a lot of emotions involved in this I, this can can be kind of like a morbid exercise but would you be able to, to get back to work after a couple of weeks or do you think you need more months to mourn your loss sometimes we don't know that right until we go through it so it's it's the kind of thing that's unlikely to happen but it's it's worth envisioning so that you're properly prepared so that you 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 know feel can feel comfortable that you have enough insurance In the case of that worst event
1: happening yeah and uh, it depends on just some of the different personal finance goals that you might have as well because i think when you like earlier on in your careers you may not have a ton of expendable additional income where you might say well oh it wouldn't hurt to go ahead and get an additional policy but if one is being provided for you at work and if that's enough then of course why spend the additional money every single month for a policy that you don't necessarily need If you've thought through some of these, uh, some of those questions that Joel just mentioned. And that workplace policy, typically it is 1x or
0: 1.5x your income that's given as a free perk. Mm -hmm. Buying more through your workplace plan doesn't typically make more sense because, especially if you're healthy and 29 years old, you're going to be able to get a much better deal shopping the open market. So um, I wouldn't necessarily add to it at work. I would if you do end up. Believing or realizing that you need more, you're going to want to shop um, on the open market as opposed to you know going through that workplace plan for more.
1: Yeah, but with that being a or a perk that your employer might offer, totally take take advantage of that thing. But yeah, get the free stuff. Keep in mind though that it's. Uh, workplace provided some employer uh, pr- employer provided perk so once you were to move on from that job that's th- that thing's not going to be coming with you which is the opposite of course if you get your own individual term life policy that's good for you know no matter who it is that you work for but yeah important things to think through and this is lit- and this is coming to from a guy that got term life before we had kids. Like, this is something that we did because we kind of thought through some of those, some of those different things. And Kate, she was she just has, a, like a, I guess, a lower risk tolerance level. And she was thinking, man, okay. I guess early on, it became clear that I was becoming more of the main breadwinner. And we had purchased a home. We hadn't had kids yet, but we did have a house. And it, I think it was about two years after we had that house that we had this had this discussion and she was thinking, man, I would still love to be able to stay in this house were you to die. I don't know if I would be able to <laughs> be able to afford the mortgage. And so that's literally something that we went ahead and did. Uh, that was like a solid two years, I think, before we even had kids. And so for us, it was more of a peace of mind, a way to mitigate risk, even though it was going to be highly unlikely that that was going to happen. But every
0: young couple who doesn't have kids in their 20s or whatever is going to have Different things to think through, right? They might yeah. not own a home, but they might live exactly. They might live yep. in an airstream and say,
1: "Listen, our costs are really low, and so the one X is plenty, right?" That's that's more than enough. Yeah. Or, um, or maybe you've got fa- like a ton, a, a ton of family yep. that are fairly well off, and they've got basements and additional rooms or wings of the house that you can live in. Oh, <laughs> these are all things to consider uh, as you are trying to trying to decide if you should go ahead and go out on your own and kind of get your own policy. But that being said, like you, you don't need to be in a rush to go out there and secure your own term life policy like this is something that i would maybe put on your like medium term financial to-do list but not something that needs to happen right away because you're asking about getting a policy early on while you're young before it gets really expensive well premiums they go up over time as you get older yes but they don't adjust a ton at all from your 20s to your 30s you might end up literally paying just a few extra dollars every single month But you'll also be covered for a few extra years on the tail end, which are the most expensive years to be insured for more important years. Yes, absolutely. So you're you're kind of rolling the dice here in one sense, right? Like you're hoping that there's not going to be like a medical catastrophe that's going to change those dynamics. But I think it's totally fine to wait two or three more years, even waiting until you have kids before getting out there and getting your own additional policy. Like literally, it depends where where you look it up. But I saw one table and it showed that between the uh, ages 25 and 35, you are literally only paying $2 more. $2, $24 a year. <laughs> by waiting a decade, a decade of not paying for uh, paying annual premiums on a policy that you are, you know, unlikely going to need. Especially in these early years when you're
0: like, I'm just trying to max out a Roth IRA yes. or I'm just trying yep. to get the match on my 401k. You could maybe cut back from your investing to have more insurance. But th- these are the kind of hard decisions that people in their 20s have to make. I still remember, Matt, people uh, being told by really smart people, hey, you need more term life insurance. And I was like, but I, I'm just trying to become, you know, financially independent. And I, I feel like I need to sock more money into investments. And that, yeah, I get the value in that insurance, but I think I can wait a couple more years. And so yeah. and and so that might it's be the case here too. It's possible
1: to overinsure. You don't want to you don't want to overdo it towards keeping you from achieving some of those other things that you're getting after.
0: Right. So those are the trade-offs. like everything comes with a trade-off, right? Like that's that's the, the reality behind everything in personal finance. And so in a couple of years, you'll probably want to grab a 30-year term policy, Megan, but shop around like when you get to that point. Policy genius is one of of our favorite spots to get quotes. Costco members should also get get quotes there too. And the reason you only need a policy by the way for 3 decades instead of for life, instead of getting like a whole life policy is because we're hoping that the need for life insurance is going to evaporate by the time the Kids that you're planning on having, the theoretical kids, uh, by the time they're grown, right, and and you, that you've been saving and investing for such a long stretch, that at that point in time you don't need the coverage. You you can pay a bunch more. You can get life insurance for the rest of your years, but you'd be better off with the term policy and the much smaller premiums that accompany it, which would allow you to funnel even more money towards better financial goals like investing even more. It's a uh, it's a virtuous cycle. Yeah. And like yeah. Said,
1: it, as far as like your kids being out of the house, like that gives you a solid 12 years to have like multiple fa- failures to launch <laughs> in order for those to get for those kids to get out of there before uh you know obviously they're, they're, they're no longer dependent on you yeah so really it's it's not
0: like an easy slam dunk decision but if you think through all those things and you say wait a second kind of like matt and kate i feel like we need a little bit extra coverage and really it's not that expensive we're meeting all of our other our other financial goals anyway so let's go ahead and make the purchase it's really only going to be 19 dollars a month or something like that but then again you might say no no that would keep us from Um, being able to achieve this, this and this. And so actually, we're going to hold off for a couple more years. I think you
1: could really make uh, a pretty good argument either way. Yeah. But bottom line, know that it does not get significantly more expensive, hardly at all. Like really, it really starts ticking up once you hit 40. But uh, hey, let's get to our next question. This is from a listener who, bottom line, is wanting to make sure that he's not leaving money, uh, retirement dollars on the table at the end of the year via his 401k. Let's hear it.
5: Hi, Matt and Joel. My name is Gavin and I'm from Layton, Utah. I am a recent newcomer to the How to Money family and I've been listening for about a month now. And I love the simplicity that you guys bring to the complex world of finances. I am 34 years old and have four children and I work in a sales role for a construction company. For my role, I qualify for an annual bonus. We are paid weekly and the company offers a 401k match. In order to maximize my weekly take-home pay for day-to-day expenses, I've been making no contributions to my 401k weekly, but will calculate to take enough out of my bonus to make sure that for the year, I've contributed enough of a percentage to get the match. Also, I did confirm that my company does a true up. An extra benefit that I've seen to do this is that because I'm contributing to my 401k and the funds come out pre-tax, my taxable amount, which being a bonus is taxed at a higher percent, is less. So I'm saving a good amount on my bonus taxes by doing this. My question is, by only contributing one time per year, am I losing the long-term benefits of compounding interest in my 401k? Thank you guys. Have a great day.
0: Matt, I love that Gavin said the How to Money family. Honestly, it, like it is like a family, isn't it? I, I feel that. We In our Facebook group, we've got 10,700 members, something like that now. And people are always addressing each other in these like terms of affection which is so sweet and i did does everybody refer to each other as brother and sister (laughs) that might get a little (laughs) creepy right but maybe not quite to that extent this place is kind of weird right exactly no but it really is like it's this community we're trying to build of people who are like-minded and you want to see other people achieve success too so i think of it in some ways as a family and i don't know maybe you're the godfather of it (laughs) <laughs> but what does that make you? Um I godmother? Maybe fairy godmother? Yeah, we'll say that. All right. We'll go with that. Uh, but <laughs> uh, Gavin I'm glad to have you around man. Thanks for uh, listening to the podcast and congrats on getting the full match on the, the 401k, even though you've got four kiddos at home, Matt, that's like a, a bigger hurdle to jump over. Yeah, it is. Maximizing those retirement accounts. Speaking for personal experience, when welcome got,
1: to the, the Four Kids Club.
0: Right, Gavin. When you got that it's many, not easy. He's the mama bird, right? Like, or daddy bird. <laughs> he's got those mouths to feed. It's not easy. And so I'm glad that you've confirmed that your company does a true up, by the way. Not every plan offers this. And so that can come back to bite you if, let's say, you don't contribute for a few paycheck cycles, but you're trying to invest money in bigger chunks later in the year in order to try to get that full match. Well... If your employer's plan goes the true-up path at the end of the year like Gavin's does, you'll be fine, right? You, you receive the full matching dollars you otherwise would have received if you had invested uh, like normal, like clockwork along the way. But if your employer does not offer the, the, uh, the ability to true-up, you will have missed out on some of those free matching dollars. So this is just an important detail to, to make sure that you're aware of with your employer if you're not uh, committing money to your 401k regularly throughout the year.
1: Yeah. And, and basically, the, the reason that the true up is necessary is employers basically are lazy. <laughs> and so oftentimes the way the the match is calculated is they base it on your annual salary. And so at the beginning of the year, they say, OK, if we provide a 6% match based on your salary, this is how much we would contribute. This is how much we're going to match every single paycheck. But if there are some gaps and I totally get it, Gavin, if you're kind of like, I'm not totally sure if we're how aggressively we're going to invest this year. I got four mouths to feed you. There might be times when you're just like, all right, things are looking kind of tight. So you skip out on a f- some of those contributions. But basically, when you contribute to your 401k, it acts as a trigger for your employer to, com- to, to match with their matching contribution. And so what that means is that if you invest at the end of the year with a lump sum and you don't have that true up, if let's say you just invest over three paychecks uh, towards the end of the year, well, you're only you're only going to get that match on those three paychecks and the whole rest of the year <laughs> you're missing out. Yeah. And so what's actually interesting is that this works both ways, too. Let's say you are a very aggressive investor and you're like, oh, I want to I want to get uh, I want to get invested as soon as possible. And so you invest, let's just say, the first three months of the year. Well, you're literally putting like 90% of your paycheck aside to hit the limit. Yeah, exactly. And were you to do that, then each one of those paychecks, you would get the match that was calculated there for each paycheck divided out like over the entire year. But once you stop contributing to your 401k because you've hit your maximum contribution limit. Well, your employer, again, it's not going to be triggered. And so they're not going to be matching it with dollars because they aren't calculating it on a per pay cycle basis. Yeah. Some employers do that. It's just, it's more work. And I understand it from a, from a, it's a pain in the butt for them to basically calculate how much you're de- deciding to contribute for that pay cycle to your 401k. But from an employee standpoint, that would be the easiest route, because then you literally they're matching dollar, you know, they're matching how based on however much that you're putting aside. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's just not how the majority of employers do it. Yeah.
0: So you, you just have to know before you kind of figure out how what like what your contribution cycle is going to look like. You, you want to know the details of whether or not your employer's plan does. Yeah, you want to know the details. Up, yeah, contribution matching or not. And so if your po- employer doesn't, let's say, offer the true feature, you'd be well served to do whatever you can to make sure that you regularly invest, right? At least up to the match with every single paycheck, not waiting, let's say, until the end of the year, like Gavin's doing, right? And his question is basically whether or not taking this route and investing in a lump sum at the end of the year is okay, because his employer is still going to contribute those matching dollars. And I would say the simple answer is yes. Like as long as you're getting the full match, which you are, because your employer uh, does the true up, then you're totally fine. No worries, right? And more than anything, like more than anything, we don't want you leaving matching contributions on the table, because as long as you're contributing enough to get the full match, when and how you do it is really less of a consideration. It's more minor. That's
1: right. But that being said, if you, (laughs) if you, and this is what we talk about here on how to money, we get a little nerdier with it. Uh, If you really want to optimize those dollars that you're waiting to invest until uh, December December towards the end of the year, well, they obviously won't be invested in the market quite as long. And since the stock market goes up essentially three of every four years. You're actually going to be investing at a less than opportune time. Uh, The reality is that the sooner that you can get your dollars invested, the sooner you can get your dollars into uh, your 401k, the better off you're going to be because that gives those dollars more time to experience the magic of compounding returns. And it may be more or less on a given year, but year after year, again, we're talking about compounding here. It's not just the fact that it happens once. It we're talking about the fact that it, it just snowballs right. it builds upon itself 25% of the time
0: you're going to come out ahead like in 2022 if you wait until december you're like woohoo <laughs> like I, I actually i
1: actually made out like a bandit by waiting but most of the time that's not going to be the exactly. case exactly so that would mean th- then you know rather than waiting to invest at the end of the year investing regularly with every paycheck that would be a better pick uh, but if you want to get really nerdy with it the superior option is going to be to invest invest as aggressively as possible and as early in the year as possible possible. But again, you know, we're talking about optimization here. We're not really talking about what's right or wrong, but either way, if, by waiting to invest, either at the squeeze it in at the beginning, or if you squeeze it in at the end of the year, either way, Gavin, for you, you're going to be made whole, and you're not leaving yeah. any dollars uh, on the table. Yeah, we're not trying to put pressure on you because again, you've got four mouths
0: to feed, so yep. it's not like, hey, start max it out in January, right? I mean, but this is something worth noting that by delaying, you're not optimizing to the fullest extent that you could. Yep. By the way, you mentioned a common misconception, Gavin, that I wanted to clear up, which is that bonuses are taxed at higher tax rates which is actually not true. It, it kind of feels like it because more taxes withheld from bonus dollars that are paid out. Typically, we're talking about a flat 22% that the employer holds back um, in, in taxes when they pay out a bonus, not to mention Social Security, state taxes, Medicare. So it can feel like, wait, I just got a $10,000 bonus. Why is it like fifty-five hundo in my account? Like I don't understand. I mean, everything gets sorted out though when you file your taxes. And so, if your effective tax rate is lower than twenty-two percent, that's going to shake out in the form of a tax refund for you when you file your taxes in the spring. And so, bonuses are awesome, and hopefully, you're even more excited to get yours this year, knowing that it's not actually taxed at a higher rate. Matt, I hear that from people all the time. They're like, "Oh, my, it's a misconception. Love getting a bonus, but man, the taxes suck on it, and it it feels like it. But you're gonna." Probably come out ahead when you file your taxes. You're going to get some money back.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of comes back again to just some of the the most common paths that employers take, which is when they when they apply the standard 22% tax rate on bonuses earned like that. It's the potentially easiest path for them to take, but it not the most optimized for you for your own personal finances. Similar to uh, the the true up method or the yeah. true up option, the fact that that's there, it's to be able to uh, to make up for the fact that. They're not doing things perfectly optimized, which if we lived in a perfect world, of course, everything would be perfectly optimized. But employers got other things to worry about. But uh, Gavin, we think that you're going to be set. We appreciate you listening to the podcast. Joel, we've got two additional questions that we're going to get to. And speaking of podcasts, we're going to get a little meta with it. We're going to talk about the medium of podcasting itself, plus one other right after the break.
0: AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP
1: volunteer events. So, it's safe to say, it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wisefriend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans.
0: We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach. Every single summer, we've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes, those vacations or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb, you just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
1: Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the, uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, for your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial.
0: All right, Matt, in just a second, we're going to help a listener out who has been crushing it with his own podcast, creating great content for a lot of years. But how does he scale? We'll get to that one in just a sec. But let's first get to a question from a listener who's wondering if he should build a new house and then rent it out.
3: Hey, guys, this is Keith from the Oregon Coast calling in again. I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are on the build-to-rent option as far as real estate investing. I have several just bare-ground properties that are paid off, utilities are in, ready to build on. And I'm also a builder, so I guess I'm able to build brand-new houses and then just rent them out as opposed to like a spec house where you sell them. See, so yeah, I'm, I'm just—I I don't hear a lot about this option, but it seems like it could be pretty good long term. Alternatively, I could just take the money I would use to do that. I'd probably get it from pulling a HELOC out of my house and put a down payment on a duplex or quad or something. So yeah, I don't know. But what, what's your guys' thoughts on this?
1: Uh, Matt, at least this time Keith's got a question that isn't like peering into my soul, right? <laughs> the, the counseling relational. Yeah, his wife is like picking him apart after, <laughs> after going to counseling. So, uh, Keith just like your
0: wife is. At some point, going Keith, to you. Keith and I need to commiserate <laughs> on the on, on the Oregon coast over beers
1: about the, you know, how difficult it is to be, to be married to or to be uh, in a relationship with a therapist. And I'm going to invite myself not to sit in on y'all's conversation, but to drink beer and to go hiking. And laugh but, at us. <laughs> but Keith, we really like your question because normally we would be a little more cautious of this approach, right? Building something from scratch and, you know, with this long kind of drawn out plan in order to have an investment property. Uh, but you specifically check a bunch of boxes. You own the land. So check. Uh, the utilities are already in the ground. That's another check. That's it's awesome. Like the opposite of like when people are trying to sell you lakefront property. I know. And and it's, it's like, like for oh, 10 grand, you can get this lakefront spot. Here's uh, somebody we know that will provide septic and yeah, yeah all that. But Keith is also the builder. And I think if any of those details were different, our advice would pro- like likely be different as well. Like if Joe Schmo was asking about just buying random dirt in a far off location. Like, no. Like a country song. that is That would be our advice. We'd say, yeah, probably not. But it sounds like, you know, Keith, he's got the know-how and he's got the ability, I think, to, to pull this off. Uh, it makes me think that, we've got a friend and maybe this is like 10 12 13 years ago something like that he uh in town purchased a plot of land and the goal for him was to build his house on that property Uh, but unfortunately it didn't the american dream it did not work out for him whether i think it was a combination of maybe not having done quite as much due diligence but also i think maybe some slight dishonesty on the part of the seller but bottom line it was basically fema flood maps made it unbuildable he could not build there and i don't I think he ended up, like, he might still own the piece of property or maybe he donated it sure. i think I'm he had talking. to donate it for tax that purposes. was like the best way he still paid, lost money much less the a lot of money in the in the sorrow i think he ended up, it was ended up, ended up being like thirty thousand dollars maybe that he'd originally originally paid for that yeah. so keith for you we think this could be an excellent route and an excellent path to take for everybody else out there. uh, Listen to why we think Keith is well-suited to do this, because (laughs) he he truly is. He is. Yeah, you're right. A lot of other people who would say, I want to buy some
0: land and I want to build on it. There's just a lot you need to consider before you go that route. And utilities are are definitely one consideration. But but this is kind of like Keith's superpower here, right? He'd likely be able to build this house for far less than what someone else in the area Mm -hmm. would pay for a new home, given the connections that you have and the sweat equity that you would likely be able to put in, Keith, it means like maybe you're doing the tiling, right? Maybe you're even uh, installing some of the electrical. I don't know. But those factors are critical when you're trying to figure out if this is a sound decision, because the cost of building has gone up substantially, but so have rents and home values. And so as long as the numbers make sense for you, and you're not taking on crazy high interest debt to pull this off, it seems like a sound decision to us. And, And it also makes me think, Matt, he mentioned buying a duplex or a triplex. Well, Keith, what if when you build this house, the hybrid approach—you build a duplex or a triplex, <laughs> but you build a nice one. That's—I had a neighbor across the street back when we lived in town as well, and he built a really nice duplex. He lived in one half, and he rented out the other. He eventually moved away from that uh, from that part of town. He lives elsewhere now, and he rents out both. And this has been like a money maker for him, hand over fist, for a whole lot of years. So, if you build a nice duplex, I think maybe
1: that is the best of both worlds. That's right. Also, before we keep talking about real estate, Keith, he didn't mention any of his specifics, but this is also assuming that Keith, that you are already maxing out your retirement accounts, which are going to be the easy button when it comes to growing your net worth. Uh, But just because it's easy, like that, doesn't mean that investing in the overall market that that is an inferior option, and because in many ways, it's actually going to be the superior option. Right? Like you're going to be more diversified. Uh, It can be fully automated. You don't have to worry about managing the properties. And of course, like there's the chance that you may not quite get the juicy returns like you would with real estate. But that doesn't mean that you should skip investing, uh, of course, in boring tax advantaged accounts. And keep in mind, too, like one of the things you said was you haven't heard many folks talk about taking this path. And I think the reason that is, is because oftentimes you have... Land, real estate developers. You've got developers, right? And they are the ones who are like choosing the sites and d- figuring out how many houses they're going to kind of cram onto, <laughs> put on the land. Uh, and then you've got property, m- real estate managers. They're typically specialized in what it is that they do. From a business standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. But f- as an individual, Keith, if you w- want to be scrappy and are willing to learn and do both of these things, man, you've got the ability to see this thing through from soup to nuts, right? Like you are. You've got the plots of land. You can figure out like how it is maybe even that you want to orient the houses on the property. Like you have an ability to create some awesome Places here, uh, but then see it through, right? Like get it ready, show it, manage it, uh, and with that in mind, again, like Joel said, this this is it's almost like a it's a superpower, but it's almost like an unfair advantage that <laughs> that you have compared yeah. to anybody else who's looking to get into real estate. Yeah. So put it to use, and especially
0: if you're going to live in half of it, maybe maybe you say, oh, for two years, I'm willing to live in the property, and maybe that's going to to make this an even better make make it even make more sense, right? Make it an even better investment. But assuming you're good to go, right? And and you're ready to put that superpower to use, it's really important to make sure that you're performing your due diligence, right? Gathering the data, running the numbers is a really important step in this whole process. You got to figure out how much is this gonna is this house or multifamily residence going to cost me to build? And what are you likely to be able to get in rent for it? Is there a dearth of rental units where you currently live? Like knowing... The, all good information yeah, to, to
1: be looking up and those to know. local
0: dynamics are crucial in and, real estate, right?
1: And local zoning as well. Like, so the fact that you mentioned that the utilities are already in the ground, I picture a development of a bunch of houses, and maybe zoning may not allow for multifamily, or maybe there's an HOA that keeps you from being able to rent that out. These yeah. are obviously all things that you want to make sure that you have a good grasp on. Yeah, yeah. And I love that he's thinking long term. By the way, I think it's really important because y- you got to know the local dynamics, but you also
0: got to say, all right, well how long am I willing to hold on to this? And it sounds like Keith is willing to make this decision and build this house and and manage it as a rental for years and years to come and so if the numbers make sense from the get-go the longer your ownership timeline the better it's going to perform for you over the years when we had chad carson on recently what did he say that owning a house owning rental property over the long term eventually it starts out as a part time job and it turns into a blue chip stock and so the the pain on the front end can pay off in the back on the back end in a meaningful way so keith if yeah if the numbers make sense even in the infancy of the project,
1: then I think it's it's only going to get better over the years. And Really make sense, yeah. <laughs> down the road, assuming there's not something terrible that happens next, yeah. you know, next door or <laughs> down there. But uh, Keith, we appreciate your question, and we really like how you are thinking about this potential real estate investment. Joel, let's get to our last question. This one's from Doug, and he has an affinity for the '80s.
2: Hey, Matt, Joel, uh, Doug here from Philadelphia. And I have a question for you that is not a money question. (laughs) Uh, I'm pretty good on that front and have been listening to you guys and taking your advice now for almost a year. This is more of a podcasting question. Uh, There are a lot of different money podcasts out there and you guys seem to have built quite an audience for yourself. Um, I have a podcast on 80s movies, uh, sort of a comedy podcast, and then looking to sort of, Break through or build an audience. I mean, it's just a hobby. I know there are services out there that will help promote your show, blah, blah, blah. I certainly don't want to spend money. Um, is there any advice that you have? Any, any sort of outlets or, or maybe how you guys got started? It's something that I really haven't heard you guys talk about. And I know that this is not a money question. So if it doesn't make the show, I totally get it. Um, but anyway, thank you so much. Uh, shameless plug. The podcast is Good Times Great Movies. I don't know. You can cut that out. You don't need to play that if you don't want to. All right. Thanks, guys. I really enjoy the show.
0: Doug, we're not cutting it out. That totally gets to stay for everybody
1: to hear so that they
0: can check out your podcast. People should go listen. I went and listened to a couple episodes. And, 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 you know, of course, the one I look for, Matt, what's my favorite 80s movie? Uh, I don't know. Alf? I don't know. Is <laughs> Alf, it was,
1: was he in a movie? Uh, that would actually
0: have been a good pick. I'm, that's a good guess. But no, Bloodsport with Jean Claude oh, Van Damme. Yeah. Oh, classic. Forrest Whitaker. I mean, that that's a classic. That's Wait, a great. F- he Forrest was like Whitaker's the cop a... trying to hunt down Jean Claude Van Damme.
1: Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. The underground oh, fighting r- arena. I remember that. Dude. I just remember Jean Claude Van Damme doing the splits. and me, Yes. I mean, it was like a cultural phenomenon, right? Like, basically, as a kid, you knew that if you could do the splits like, like him somehow you'd get just as ripped <laughs> and somehow you'd be able to kick everybody's butt and it's just
0: science i managed to never do any of the above things but yeah actually Doug covered Bloodsport in episode 95 so if you're interested oh, nice. in hearing more about what an epic movie that is go back and listen to that we'll link to it in the show notes but um, yeah he's blinded at the end and he's like yes <laughs> <laughs> John Lee. Oh, it's so good. Um, but Doug, we're glad you're getting your show off the ground. And he's been at it for like, like 200-something episodes. Uh, but nice. you're, He's right. There are a lot of personal finance podcasts, and there are a lot of good ones out there, too. We're, we're really thankful that How to Money listeners listen to listen to this show and that they trust us. And so I don't know exactly, Matt, I don't know if I could boil it down to like um, how or why uh, people listen to us. These seven steps. (laughs) Right. We're not going to have that per se. Hopefully it's because we have a passion uh, for the topic. Hopefully it's because
1: we're decently well versed in it. And hopefully it's because we're trustworthy as well. Yeah, we've resonated with a specific audience. uh, But also we've been consistent, right? Because one of the things, Doug, I'm sure that you've noticed is that the podcasting space is crowded. So you were talking about Europe, Joel, at the beginning of the episode. It's it's kind of like Europe in July, (laughs) which is why you should travel during shoulder season. Uh, But it is totally true that there are basically millions of podcasts out there who are vying for listening time. Uh, But a huge percentage of those podcasts that exist, well, they've only released one single episode. And then another massive chunk have only released something like 10 episodes. So with you being in the hundreds, I think consistency clearly isn't a problem. That's like step one, right? Yeah. It it goes there. But I know for us, that was sort of one of the first things that we focused on um, was to be incredibly consistent, not only with making sure that we, we that we did it, but just the same time every week as well, because we wanted to create something regular that listeners were looking forward to. They knew that, like, oh, at the time it was Wednesday. That's when our first episode, when it, when we only had one episode, we would release them on Wednesdays. Yeah. But you want to s- start building in that regularity, and as you are starting to to build up that that base of listeners, what they used to call it in the World of radio was
0: appointment listening, right? Ooh, okay, it's like oh, at six oh eight, you know, when to tune in. Yeah, your favorite host <laughs> is going to come on, and they're going to talk about this or whatever. Like, and, and so that that's kind of what we wanted was, hey, every week you get used to listening and learning, and like you kind of keep doing it because hopefully it's, it's helping you and it's fun. That's a part of your routine, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Matt, we also learned a lesson pretty early on when people thought they were turning into a personal finance podcast, and we talked
1: about beer for like ten minutes at the beginning. You remember that? <laughs> I, I do. Yeah. Well, early, early. On, we also called it poor, not poor. Yeah. Like you pour beer, not poor broke which is also just a confusing name also a tongue twister so we had to change some of the marketing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to appeal to the audience we
0: were looking for as well but obviously we're fans of craft beer and we included it in the show it's a part of our vibe but yes. over time we found more subtle ways to weave it into the show and so for instance asking our guests about their craft beer equivalent that's a great way for it to be baked into the show but dominating the initial most important 10 minutes of our conversation with beer talk not so great especially when people are like looking for money advice and the practical help in that department. So, sure. yeah. uh, uh, of course, you don't want to neuter your show and remove all personality from it. But finding a way to garner feedback where you're listening to any critiques can help you to refine your pod. Matt, we had uh, an email address specifically dedicated to that. Right? It was it was like howtomoneycom slash better. I don't know. if oh, the, we
1: yeah, the URLs kept like a, that <laughs> alive or not, but
0: that was <laughs> a way people could submit negative feedback and say like, "Listen, you guys suck on this, or you really need to improve on this." The or constructive criticism. I can't believe you said this. It's always helpful. And so we we try to listen from that feedback and make
1: adjustments because, um, yeah, we're, we're learning on the fly too. Yeah. Yeah. We are always trying to create a better product at the end of the day. And that being said, like, I'm going to take this opportunity. If you have some feedback for us, totally let us know. I think we still have that page up. I think forward slash get better or do better. Maybe that was it. But either way, just email us. Email us at howtomoneypod at gmail.com. It goes to both Joel and I. And we always read those emails. But Doug mentioned some of those different services that you can pay to promote your show. Obviously, don't do that because a lot of those are scams. I'm I'm sure you're aware of that just today, I dove into the, um, what, what are the message requests in Instagram, which I've only look at like once every oh, yeah. quarter, <laughs> basically. I'm basically. guessing like 80% of them. are. There's, or... like th- there's so there's like f- something like 30 uh, promotion things where it's just like, for $10, you get a thousand or a hundred new, you know, a hundred new yeah. follows, all of that kind of Almost stuff. Almost every like friend request I got on LinkedIn is the same thing. Exactly. And, you know, your follower count or those downloads, you know, they might go up, but that might just be the product of bot so i wouldn't trust any of those actual you know the, those requests those internet scam artists who promise to raise the profile of your show and i also want to mention that you're probably narrow casting with the content of your show right this isn't a problem though given what it is you talk about given the length of your show it's just likely i think that you're going to have fewer uh yet more rabid listeners and fans yeah. of good times what was it great good times great movies yeah so I'm not sure if you're looking to monetize the podcast, but if you are taking the route of Patreon or buy my coffee, uh, these can be great ways, like those platforms uh, can help to just turn some of those diehard listeners into some actual money where you're able to, to monetize the show gradually. It doesn't yeah. have to be this all or nothing kind of thing. I think there are ways for folks to kind of to kind of dabble and kind of start offsetting some costs and maybe, maybe eventually you're, oh man... Are we actually generating an income? <laughs> uh, that would, of course, be an awesome thing. I mean, the real way to have the most
0: successful podcast is to pivot into a crime show because that's what people <laughs> love and listen to the most. And that's what actually Matt and I are going to do starting next week. <laughs> we're uh, ditching the personal finance. Except that we're going to create.
1: We're going to commit the crimes. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to detail it along the way. We're going to document it. It's going to be. It's going to be insane. We're going to hide in the woods <laughs> in trees, and um, we'll be on the run for hopefully years.
1: But th- 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 quietly that, podcasting like Blair Witch <laughs> style about. Oh, right. <laughs> that would actually, think about it, that would crush if you were creating a show in real time and in the and news. You're on the run, yes. And you're on the run, but then I guess you would get deplatformed, right? Like they would, because they wouldn't want that going out unless somehow you had control over your platform, yeah. you know? Like if you were you know, Elon Musk rich. And then, <laughs> yeah. You can control the means of which you're communicating with folks. Right. Well, so enough and, of that. And, and if you were, you'd have other ways to promote your podcast. Sure. I'm sure.
0: sure. But uh, and I, I, of course, I'm joking, but the real reality is there are certain genres and certain types of podcasts that just have more purchase with a broader audience. Right. And so uh, I think a personal finance podcast it's not going to be as listened to as one of the more popular long form interview or crime podcasts. that's true that's okay but it's the thing that we want to create and so you you're creating the thing you want to create and that's the most important part you have, um yeah I think if you're this far into it you have found your people yeah and that is what's important yeah 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 and and the other thing I mean Seth Godin talks about the minimum viable audience and I think you have to figure out okay what is that for me if I've got 1500 1800 2000 people listening every single episode I create, well would i show up to uh, a lecture hall if two thousand people wanted to listen to me talk about 80s movies heck yeah i would right because that i'm that passionate about it to see that many people in one place but sometimes we look at it as, as numbers on a screen when these are real human people digesting our content which is yeah. super cool so think about it like that and then also realize actually that's, that's a lot of people I'm, I'm speaking to it's a ton who, of people who really like and care about the same thing i care about and so um i, I I love that that Doug called it a hobby. Like, I think the number one rule of podcasting is that you should do it if you feel compelled to get a message out into the world. You've got to love it. And it's okay to want to grow, but don't forget the reason you started it and why you take the time every week to continue creating. So, uh, Matt, the way we started was like, literally, we said, hey, we're going to be AAA at everything. We're not going to be pro level because that would take too much time, too much effort. But as long as we're hitting AAA marks, as long as we're professional doing our best and we're we're being consistent, like you said, and then we try to get on other podcasts to kind of raise the profile uh, of our show and help mm-hmm. other people find out. But and we, not just podcasts that did the exact same thing we did, kind of tangential podcasts, sure. right?
1: Yeah. But That being said, we didn't do a ton of that. Like like literally maybe just like a few, like a handful. and But slowly over time, we did build up an audience. And... I guess I'm thinking of marketing, like it makes me like early on, we made koozies. But we didn't even send those out to listeners. I think we just like gave them out to our friends because we thought it was cool. (laughs) Like We were just nerdy. And it was something that we enjoyed. But that's kind of what Joel's speaking to like, make sure that it's fun for you. Don't worry too much about the marketing side of things. Obviously, with it's like, so we were able to grow the show. And then, you know, we're with iHeart now. And so they do a lot of the marketing for us as well. But at the end of the day, don't. I I honestly wouldn't even worry too much about that because marketing, I, I heard this quote where they said that basically marketing wins the day but quality content wins the year. Mm. Like, like marketing is good for the short run, but unless you're creating a quality product, it doesn't really matter what the marketing plan is. It depends on what it is that you're creating. And so, Doug, I think focusing on the quality of the show, don't forget that that is what you need to be focused on, you know, first and foremost, and as opposed the to worrying about the, the marketing and the scaling and growing side
0: of things. And Doug's is the kind of show where people, it's going to get word of mouth traction, right? People who are like, I love 80s movies, and they know their best friend loves 80s movies reason. They're like, you got to listen to this podcast I'm listening to. that That's going to be the best way for it to grow. Uh, I think you could get on, you know, try to get on other podcasts. You can you can work on other ways to grow and to find your audience. And you can put a lot of effort into that. But do you have the time and the, like the the biggest thing, focus the majority of your time on creating something great that you like creating. Um, that's going to be the most sustainable. It makes me think we have a, yep. we have a listener, Matt, who writes about uh, a newsletter about fitness. And that's his thing when it comes oh, to yeah. fitness is like, do what's sustainable. You might like, be able to go hard seven days a week for two weeks but then you're going to burn out you're going to stop and so whatever workouts you choose make sure it's something you want to replicate you want to keep doing and that's kind of I found that to be true in my own life if I try to do something that I hate I'm probably
1: gonna like you're gonna Stop burn out it. yeah exactly all right doug we wish you the best man and, and we hopefully will. you get millions of <laughs> downloads just from
0: this sweet how to money podcast
1: just the sweet htm plug <laughs> the boys gave me a shout. The htm bump is what we'll call it <laughs> that's right the beer you and i enjoyed joel was chubby unicorn again this was a guava milkshake ipa by common space what were your thoughts you know it's funny on the on the can it says it came with
0: it had guava puree in it so i expected it to be a little thicker it wasn't um oh yeah it it was a little sweet little vanilla smoothie uh vanilla smoothness to it and
1: so i would say um with with some of that guava note but not as much as i expected yes so the guava it lent it that like guava passion fruit like tropical flavors Mm -hmm. like it makes me think of like not skittles but the tropical Skittles, yeah. where, you know, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain kind of that softness that you get with some of the tropical flavors. But we definitely had that going on in conjunction with the fact that I, I assume there was lactose in this, considering it was a milkshake, uh, milkshake IPA. But with it being an IPA, that also it wasn't overly sweet because you had the bitterness from the hops. It worked really well. And I actually really dug this one. Uh, and I dug the label, too. It's got the, the unicorn on there, and we were joking before we hit record, that... Uh, is it Weldworks? They, they've got like a lot of unicorn imagery with their brand, and it, so... It might be them. Somebody's got I, the ninja verse unicorn all that Yes, kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I think that's what works. I could be wrong. No, I don't think it is.
0: I think it's it's it? half acre or something like that, maybe.
1: Oh. I don't know. I, I should we should yeah, know we We're craft beer experts, Matt. <laughs> we should know. But they've got multiple beers that are all unicorn, unicorn based, whatever. So I hope common whoops, almost dropped it. Oh hope common space doesn't get shut down um, because they got the unicorn yeah, on there. Hope but they don't get the cease and desist. There's plenty of there's plenty of room out there for just like there's plenty of room for all the different podcasts out there. There's plenty of room for unicorn yeah. and craft beer. I, I love
0: a, a good like fruited milkshake IPA like one of my favorites of all time is the strawberry milkshake IPA Ooh. from I want um, Wrecking Bar. Oh yeah. That is a delicious one but th- yeah this one was solid and it's yeah if you like sours and you like IPAs put them together this is what you get right?
1: <laughs> That's right uh, we'll make sure to link to any of the different resources we mentioned during this episode up on the website in our show notes at howtomoney.com. And if you are not yet a subscriber to the How to Money newsletter, make sure that you are. Howtomoney.com forward slash newsletter. You can see some of the previous issues there to get a sampling, but go ahead and sign up to ensure that you don't miss the next newsletter that goes out on Tuesday, tomorrow morning. But buddy, that's going to be it for this one. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out.